We're coming to the end of our story tonight, and we would love to know what you would like to hear next. Head to our website, sleepybookshelf.com, and submit your vote. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. Thank you for joining me tonight for the final pages of To The Lighthouse. I hope you have enjoyed this season. First though, let's take a minute or two to be still and present. Put aside any of those noisy machines vying for your attention with their buzzes and notifications. Set yourself to do not disturb. They will all still be there later or tomorrow. Just now, you need to rest. Let go of any tension or anxiety in your body and just sit or lay quietly. If any thoughts or emotions are still moving through your body, remind yourself that you don't need to do anything about them right now. Just now, you need to rest. If you have an urgent sense that you must do something, know that there will be time for that later on or tomorrow. Just now, you need to rest. If at any point you feel like you're doing or thinking something on purpose, acknowledge it and return to your stillness. Just now, you need to rest. Now breathe, calmly and peacefully, as I recap on our last episode. Last time, Lily thought back on her relationship with William Banks, how they remained very good friends but never anything romantic, despite Mrs. Ramsay's wishes. She imagined Mrs. Ramsay in front of her. And when she came out of her thoughts, she realized she was crying. To distract herself, she turned back to the water to try to spot the boat once more. Meanwhile, the boat had come to a complete stop. The breeze had died down, and they were now bobbing in the waves. Mr. Ramsay began to read a book. James stared at his father, bitterly analysing his every gesture while resenting his tyrannical ways. He tried to remember where his contempt originated. The tension seemed to build while the boat rocked silently, though no one said a word. Just then, the sail caught another breath of wind 
and the relief James felt was palpable. Cam, meanwhile, had her fingers in the water, thinking about how safe she felt with her father and always had, despite his temper. And that's where we pick back up tonight, with Lily still looking out to sea to spot the Ramsey's boat. So lie back and relax as I turn to the final pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 3 The Lighthouse Chapter 12 So much depends then, thought Lily Briscoe, looking at the sea which had scarcely a stain on it, which was so soft that the sails and the clouds seemed set in its blue. So much depends, she thought, upon distance whether people are near us or far from us. Her feeling for Mr. Ramsay changed as he sailed further and further across the bay. It seemed to be elongated, stretched out. He seemed to become more and more remote. He and his children seemed to be swallowed up in that blue, that distance, But here on the lawn, close at hand, Mr. Carmichael suddenly grunted. She laughed. He clawed his book up from the grass. He settled into his chair again, puffing and blowing like some sea monster. That was different altogether, because he was so near. And now again, all was quiet. They must be out of bed by this time, she supposed, looking at the house. But nothing appeared there. But then, she remembered, they had always made off directly a meal was over on business of their own. It was all in keeping with this silence, this emptiness, and the unreality of the early morning hour. It was a way things had sometimes, she thought lingering for a moment and looking at the long, glittering windows and the plume of blue smoke. They became illness. Before habits had spun themselves across the surface, one felt that same unreality which was so startling. Felt something emerge. Life was most vivid then. One could be at one's ease. Mercifully, one need not say, very briskly, crossing the lawn to greet old Mrs. Beckwith, who would be coming out to find a corner to sit in. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Beckwith. What a lovely day. Going to be so bold as to sit in the sun? Jasper's hidden the chairs. Do let me find you one. And all the rest of the usual chatter. One need not speak at all. One glided. One shook one's sails. There was a good deal of movement in the bay. Boats were starting off. Between things, 
beyond things. Empty it was not, but full to the brim. She seemed to be standing up to the lips in some substance, to move and float and sink in it. Yes, for these waters were unfathomably deep. Into them had spilled so many lives. The Ramses, the children's, and all sorts of waifs and strays of things besides. A washerwoman with her basket. A rook. A red-hot poker. The purples and grey-greens of flowers. Some common feeling which held the whole altogether. It was some such feeling of completeness, perhaps, which ten years ago, standing almost where she stood now, had made her say that she must be in love with the place. Love had a thousand shapes. There might be lovers whose gift it was to choose out of the elements of things and place them together, and so, giving them a wholeness, not theirs in life, make of some scene or meeting of people all now gone and separate, one of those globed, compacted things over which thought lingers and love plays. Her eyes rested on the brown speck of Mr. Ramsay's sailing boat. They would be at the lighthouse by lunchtime, she supposed. But the wind had freshened, and as the sky changed slightly, and the sea changed slightly, and the boats altered their positions, the view, which a moment before had seemed miraculously fixed, was now unsatisfactory. The wind had blown the trail of smoke about. There was something displeasing about the placing of the ships. The disproportion there seemed to upset some harmony in her own mind. She felt an obscure distress. It was confirmed when she turned to her picture. She had been wasting her morning. For whatever reason, she could not achieve that razor edge of balance between two opposite forces, Mr. Ramsay and the picture, which was necessary. There was something perhaps wrong with the design. Was it she wondered that the line of the wall wanted breaking? Was it that the mass of the trees was too heavy? She smiled ironically, for had she not thought when she began that she had solved her problem? What was the problem then? She must try to get hold of something that evaded her. It evaded her when she thought of Mrs. Ramsay. It evaded her now when she thought of her picture. Phrases came. Visions came. Beautiful pictures, beautiful phrases. But what she wished to get hold of was that very jar on the nerves. The thing itself, before it has been made anything. Get that and start afresh. Get that and start afresh, she said desperately, pitching herself firmly again before her easel. It was a miserable machine. An inefficient machine, she thought, the human apparatus for painting or feeling. It always broke down at the critical moment. Heroically, one must 
force it on. She stared, frowning. There was the head, sure enough, but one got nothing by soliciting urgently. One only got a glare in the eye from looking at the line of the wall, or from thinking. She wore a grey hat. She was astonishingly beautiful. Let it come, she thought, if it will come. For there are moments when one can neither think nor feel. And if one can neither think nor feel, she thought, where is one? Here, on the grass, on the ground, she thought, sitting down and examining with her brush a little colony of plantains, for the lawn was very rough. Here, sitting on the world, she thought, but she could not shake herself free from the sense that everything this morning was happening for the first time, perhaps for the last time, as a traveller, even though he is half asleep, knows looking out of the train window that he must look now, for he will never see that town, or that mule cart, or that woman at work in the fields again. The lawn was the world. They were up here together, on this exalted station, she thought, looking at old Mr. Carmichael, who seemed, though they had not said a word all this time, to share her thoughts, and she would never see him again, perhaps. He was growing old. Also, she remembered, smiling at the slipper that dangled from his foot, he was growing famous. People said that his poetry was so beautiful. They went and published things he had written 40 years ago. There was a famous man now called Carmichael, she smiled, thinking how many shapes one person might wear. How he was that in the newspapers, but here the same as he had always been. He looked the same. Greyer, rather. Yes, he looked the same, but somebody had said, she recalled, that when he had heard of Andrew Ramsey's death, he was killed in a second by a shell. He should have been a great mathematician. Mr. Carmichael had lost all interest in life. What did it mean, that, she wondered? Had he marched through Trafalgar Square, grasping a big stick? Had he turned pages over and over without reading them, sitting in his room in St. John's Wood alone? She did not know what he had done when he had heard that Andrew was killed, but she felt it in him all the same. They only mumbled at each other on the staircase. They looked up at the sky and said it will be fine or won't be fine. This was one way of knowing people, she thought, to know the outline, not the detail, to sit in one's garden and look at the slopes of a hill, running purple down into the distant heather. She knew him in that way. She knew that he had changed somehow. She had never read a line of his poetry. She thought that she knew how it went, though, slowly and sonorously was seasoned and mellow, 
It was about the desert and the camel. It was about the palm tree and the sunset. It was extremely impersonal. It said something about death. It said very little about love. There was an impersonality about him. He wanted very little of other people. Had he not always lurched rather awkwardly past the drawing room window with some newspaper under his arm, trying to avoid Mrs. Ramsay, whom, for some reason, he did not much like? On that account, of course, she would always try to make him stop. He would bow to her. He would halt unwillingly and bow profoundly, annoyed that he did not want anything of her. Mrs. Ramsay would ask him. Lily could hear her. Wouldn't he like a coat, a rug, a newspaper? No, he wanted nothing. Here he bowed. There was some quality in her which he did not much like. It was perhaps her masterfulness, her positiveness, something matter-of-fact in her. She was so direct. Noise drew her attention to the drawing room window. The squeak of a hinge. The light breeze was toying with the window. There must have been people who disliked her very much, Lily thought. Yes, she realised that the drawing room step was empty, but it still had no effect on her whatever. She did not want Mrs. Ramsay now. People who thought her too sure, too drastic. Also, her beauty offended people, probably. How monotonous, they would say, and the same always. They preferred another type, the dark, the vivacious. Then she was weak with her husband. She let him make those scenes. Then she was reserved. Nobody knew exactly what had happened to her. And to go back to Mr. Carmichael and his dislike, one could not imagine Mrs. Ramsay standing, painting, lying, greeting, a whole morning on the lawn. It was unthinkable. Without saying a word, the only token of her errand, a basket on her arm, she went off to the town, to the poor, to sit in some stuffy little bedroom. Often and often, Lily had seen her go silently in the midst of some game, some discussion with her basket on her arm, very upright. She had noted her return. She had thought, half laughing, she was so methodical with the teacups, half moved. Her beauty took one's breath away. Eyes that are closing in pain have looked on you. You have been there with them. And then Mrs. Ramsay would be annoyed because someone was late, or the butter not fresh, or the teapot chipped, and all the time she was saying that the butter was not fresh, one would be thinking of Greek temples, and how beauty had been with them there in that stuffy little room. She never talked of it. She went, punctually, directly. It was her instinct to go. An instinct like the swallows for the south, the artichokes for the sun, turning her infallibility to the human race, 
making her nest in its heart. And this, like all instincts, was a little distressing to people who did not share it. To Mr. Carmichael, perhaps. To herself, certainly. Some notion was in both of them about the ineffectiveness of action, the supremacy of thought. Her going was a reproach to them, gave a different twist to the world so that they were led to protest, seeing their own prepositions disappear and clutch at them, vanishing. Charles Tansley did that too, which was part of the reason why one disliked him. He upset the proportions of one's world. And what had happened to him, she wondered, idly stirring the plantains with her brush. He had got his fellowship. He had married. He lived at Golders Green. She had gone one day into a hall and heard him speaking during the war. He was denouncing something. He was condemning somebody. He was preaching brotherly love, and all she felt was how could he love his kind, who did not know one picture from another, who had stood behind her smoking shag, five pence an ounce, Miss Briscoe, and made it his business to tell her women can't write, women can't paint. Not so much that he believed it, as that for some odd reason he wished it. There he was, lean and red and raucous, preaching love from a platform. There were ants crawling about among the plantains which she disturbed with her brush. Red, energetic, shiny ants, rather like Charles Tansley. She had looked at him ironically from her seat in the half-empty hall, pumping love into that chilly space. And suddenly, there was the old cask, or whatever it was, bobbing up and down among the waves, and Mrs. Ramsay looking for her spectacle case among the pebbles. Dear, what a nuisance. Lost again. Don't bother, Mr. Tansley. I lose thousands every summer. To which he pressed his chin back against his collar, as if afraid to sanction such exaggeration could stand it in her, whom he liked, and smiled very charmingly. He must have confided in her on one of those long expeditions, when people got separated and walked back alone. He was educating his little sister, Mrs. Ramsay had told her. It was immensely to his credit. Her own idea of him was grotesque. Lily knew well, stirring the plantains with her brush. Half one's notions of other people were, after all, grotesque. They served private purposes of one's own. He did for her instead of a whipping boy. She found herself flagellating his lean flanks when she was out of temper. If she wanted to be serious about him, She had to help herself to Mrs. Ramsay's sayings to look at him through her eyes. She raised a little mountain for the ants to climb over. She reduced them to a frenzy of indecision by this interference in their cosmogony, 
Some ran this way, others that. One wanted fifty pairs of eyes to see with, she reflected. Fifty pairs of eyes were not enough to get round that woman with, she thought. Among them must be the one that was stone blind to her beauty. One wanted most some secret sense, fine as air, with which to steal through keyholes and surround her where she sat knitting, talking, sitting silent in the window alone, which took to itself and treasured up like the air which held the smoke of the steamer, her thoughts, her imaginations, her desires. What did the hedge mean to her? What did the garden mean to her? What did it mean to her when a wave broke? Lily looked up as she had seen Mrs. Ramsay look up. She too heard a wave falling on the beach. And then what stirred and trembled in her mind when the children cried, How's that? How's that? Cricketing. She would stop knitting for a second. She would look intent. Then she would lapse again, and suddenly Mr. Ramsay stopped, dead in his pacing in front of her, and some curious shock passed through her and seemed to rock her in profound agitation on its breast, when stopping there, he stood over her and looked down at her. Lily could see him. He stretched out his hand and raised her from her chair seemed somehow as if he had done it before, as if he had once bent in the same way and raised her from a boat which, lying a few inches off some island, had required that ladies should thus be helped on shore by the gentlemen. An old-fashioned scene, that was, which required very nearly crinolines and peg-top trousers. Letting herself be helped by him, Mrs. Ramsay had thought, Lily supposed. The time has come now. Yes, she would say it now. Yes, she would marry him. And she stepped, slowly, quietly on shore. Probably she said one word only, letting her hand rest still in his. I will marry you, she might have said with her hand in his. But no more. Time after time, the same thrill had passed between them. Obviously it had, Lily thought, smoothing away for her aunts. She was not inventing. She was only trying to smooth out something she had been given years ago, folded up. Something she had seen. For in the rough and tumble of daily life, with all those children about, all those visitors... One had constantly a sense of repetition, of one thing falling where another had fallen, and so setting up an echo which chimed in the air and made it full of vibrations. But it would be a mistake, she thought, thinking of how they walked off together, arm in arm, past the greenhouse, to simplify their relationship. It was no monotony of bliss, she with her impulses and quicknesses, he with his shudders and glooms. Oh no, the 
bedroom door would slam violently early in the morning. He would start from the table in a temper. He would whiz his plate through the window. Then all through the house would be a sense of doors slamming and blinds fluttering, as if a gusty wind were blowing and people scudded about, trying in a hasty way to fasten hatches and make things ship-shape. She had met Paul Rayleigh like that one day on the stairs. They had laughed and laughed like a couple of children, all because Mr. Ramsay, finding an earwig in his milk at breakfast, had sent the whole thing flying through the air onto the terrace outside. An earwig? Prue murmured, awestruck. In his milk? Other people might find centipedes, but he had built round him such a fence of sanctity and occupied the space with such a demeanour of majesty that an earwig in his milk was a monster. But it tired Mrs. Ramsay. It cowed her a little, the plates whizzing and the doors slamming. And there would fall between them sometimes long, rigid silences, when in a state of mind which annoyed Lily in her, half plaintive, half resentful, she seemed unable to surmount the tempest calmly, or to laugh as they laughed, but in her weariness perhaps concealed something. She brooded and sat silent. After a time, he would hang stealthily about the places where she was, roaming under the window where she sat writing letters or talking, for she would take care to be busy when he passed and evade him, pretend not to see him. Then he would turn smooth as silk, affable, urbane, and try to win her so. Still, she would hold off, and now she would assert for a brief season some of those prides and airs, the dew of her beauty, which she was generally utterly without, would turn her head, would look so over her shoulder, always with some minter, Paul or William Banks at her side. At length, standing outside the group, the very figure of a famished wolfhound, Lily got up off the grass and stood looking at the steps, the window where she had seen him. He would say her name, once only, for all the world like a wolf barking in the snow. But still, she held back, and he would say it once more. And this time, something in the tone would rouse her, and she would go to him, leaving them all of a sudden, and they would walk off together among the pear trees, the cabbages, and the raspberry beds. They would have it out together, but with what attitudes and with what words. Such a dignity was theirs in this relationship that turning away, she and Paul and Minter would hide their curiosity and their discomfort and begin picking flowers, throwing balls, chattering until it was time for dinner. And there they were, he at one end of the table, she at the other as usual. 
why don't some of you take up botany? With all those legs and arms, why doesn't one of you? So they would talk as usual, laughing among the children. All would be as usual, save only for some quiver, as of a blade in the air, which came and went between them, as if the usual sight of the children sitting round their soup plates had freshened itself in their eyes after that hour among the pears and the cabbages. Especially Lily thought Mrs. Ramsay would glance at Prue. She sat in the middle between her brothers and sisters, always occupied it seemed, seeing that nothing went wrong so that she scarcely spoke herself. How Prue must have blamed herself for that earwig in the milk. How white she had gone when Mr. Ramsay threw his plate through the window. How she drooped under those long silences between them. Anyhow, her mother now would seem to be making it up to her, assuring her that everything was well, promising her that one of these days the same happiness would be hers. She had enjoyed it for less than a year, however. She had let the flowers fall from her basket, Lily thought, screwing up her eyes and standing back as if to look at her picture, which she was not touching, however, with all her faculties in a trance, frozen over superficially, but moving underneath with extreme speed. She let her flowers fall from the basket, scattered and tumbled them onto the grass, and reluctantly and hesitatingly, but without question or complaint, had she not the faculty of obedience to perfection, went to. Down fields, across valleys, white flower strewn. That was how she would have painted it. The hills were austere. It was rocky, it was steep. The waves sounded hoarse on the stones beneath. They went, the three of them together, Mrs. Ramsay walking rather fast in front, as if she expected to meet someone round the corner. Suddenly, the window at which she was looking was whitened by some light stuff behind it. At last, then, someone had come into the drawing room. Somebody was sitting in the chair. For heaven's sake, she prayed, let them sit still there and not come floundering out to talk to her. Mercifully, whoever it was still stayed inside, had settled by some stroke of luck so as to throw an odd-shaped triangular shadow over the step. It altered the composition of the picture a little. It was interesting. It might be useful. Her mood was coming back to her. One must keep on looking without for a second relaxing the intensity of emotion, the determination not to be put off, not to be bamboozled. One must hold the scene so, in a vice, and let nothing come in and spoil it. One wanted, she thought, dipping her brush deliberately, to be on a level with the ordinary experience, to feel simply that's a chair, that's a table, and yet at the same time, it's a miracle. 
It's an ecstasy. The problem might be solved after all. But what happened? Some wave of white went over the window pane. The air must have stirred some flounce in the room. Her heart leapt at her and seized her and tortured her. Mrs. Ramsey, Mrs. Ramsey, she cried, feeling the old horror come back to want and want and not to have. Could she inflict that still? And then quietly, as if she refrained, that too became part of an ordinary experience. It was on a level with the chair, with the table. Mrs. Ramsey, it was part of her perfect goodness, sat there quite simply in the chair, flicked her needles to and fro, knitted her reddish-brown stocking, cast her shadow on the step. There she sat. And as if she had something she must share, yet could hardly leave her easel so full her mind was of what she was thinking, of what she was seeing, Lily went past Mr. Carmichael holding her brush to the edge of the lawn. Where was the boat now? And Mr. Ramsey. She wanted him. Chapter 13 Mr. Ramsey had almost done reading. One hand hovered over the page as if to be in readiness to turn it the very instant he had finished it. He sat there, bareheaded with the wind blowing his hair about, extraordinarily exposed to everything. He looked very old. He looked, James thought, getting his head now against the lighthouse, now against the waste of the waters running away into the open, like some old stone lying on the sand. He looked as if he had become physically what was always at the back of both their minds. That loneliness, which was for both of them the truth about things. He was reading very quickly as if he were eager to get to the end. Indeed, they were very close to the lighthouse now. There it loomed up, stark and straight, glaring white and black and one could see the waves breaking in white splinters like smashed glass upon the rocks. One could see lines and creases in the rocks. One could see the windows clearly, a dab of white on one of them, and a little tuft of green on the rock. A man had come out and looked at them through a glass and gone in again. So it was like that, James thought. The lighthouse, one, had seen across the bay all those years. It was a stark tower on a bare rock. It satisfied him. It confirmed some obscure feeling about his own character. The old ladies, he thought, thinking of the garden at home, went dragging their chairs about on the lawn. Old Mrs. Beckwith, for example, was always saying how nice it was and how sweet it was and how they ought to be so proud and they ought to be so happy. But as a matter of fact, James thought, looking at the lighthouse, stood there on its rock. It's like that. 
He looked at his father, reading fiercely with his legs curled tight. They shared that knowledge. We are driving before a gale. We must sink, he began saying to himself, half aloud, exactly as his father said it. Nobody seemed to have spoken for an age. Cam was tired of looking at the sea. Little bits of black cork had floated past. The fish were dead in the bottom of the boat. Still, her father read and James looked at him. She looked at him. They vowed that they would fight tyranny to the death. And he went on reading, quite unconscious of what they thought. It was thus that he escaped, she thought. Yes, with his great forehead and his great nose, holding his little mottled book firmly in front of him, he escaped. You might try to lay hands on him, but then like a bird he spread his wings. He floated off to settle out of your reach somewhere far away on some desolate stump. She gazed at the immense expanse of the sea. The island had grown so small that it scarcely looked like a leaf any longer. It looked like the top of a rock, which some wave bigger than the rest would cover. Yet in its frailty were all those paths, those terraces, those bedrooms, all those innumerable things. But as, just before sleep, things simplify themselves so that only one of all the myriad details has power to assert itself so, she felt, looking drowsily at the island, all those paths and terraces and bedrooms were fading and disappearing and nothing was left but a pale blue sensor swinging rhythmically this way and that across her mind. It was a hanging garden. It was a valley full of birds and flowers and antelopes. She was falling asleep. <clears throat> Come now, said Mr. Ramsay, suddenly shutting his book. Come where? what extraordinary adventure. She woke with a start. To land somewhere. To climb somewhere. Where was he leading them? For after his immense silence, the words startled them. But it was absurd. He was hungry, he said. It was time for lunch. Besides, look, he said. There's the lighthouse. We're almost there. He is doing very well said McAllister, praising James. He's keeping her very steady. But his father never praised him, James thought grimly. Mr. Ramsay opened the parcel and shared out the sandwiches among them. Now he was happy, eating bread and cheese with these fishermen. He would have liked to have lived in a cottage and lounged about the harbour, spitting with the other old men, James thought watching him slice his cheese into thin yellow sheets with his penknife. This is right. This is it, Cam kept feeling, as she peeled her hard-boiled egg. Now she felt as she did in the study, when the old men were reading the times. 
Now I can go on thinking whatever I like, and I shan't fall over a precipice or be drowned. For there he is, keeping his eye on me, she thought. At the same time, they were sailing so fast along by the rocks that it was very exciting. It seemed as if they were doing two things at once. They were eating their lunch here in the sun, and they were also making for safety in a great storm after a shipwreck. Would the water last? Would the provisions last? She asked herself, telling herself a story, but knowing at the same time what was the truth. They would soon be out of it, Mr. Ramsay was saying to old McAllister, but their children would see some strange things. McAllister said he was 75 last March. Mr. Ramsay was 71. McAllister said he had never seen a doctor. He had never lost a tooth. And that's the way I'd like my children to live. Cam was sure that her father was thinking that, for he stopped her throwing a sandwich into the sea and told her, as if he were thinking of the fishermen and how they lived, that if she did not want it, she should put it back in the parcel. She should not waste it. He said it so wisely, as if he knew so well all the things that happened in the world that she put it back at once. And then he gave her from his own parcel a gingerbread nut, as if he were a great Spanish gentleman, she thought, handing a flower to a lady at a window, so courteous in his manner. He was shabby and simple, eating bread and cheese, and yet he was leading them on a great expedition where, for all she knew, they would be drowned. That was where she sunk, said McAllister's boy suddenly. Three men were drowned where we are now, the old man said. He had seen them clinging to the mast himself, and Mr. Ramsay, taking a look at the spot, was about. James and Cam were afraid to burst out, but I beneath a rougher sea, and if he did not, they could not bear it. They would shriek aloud. They could not endure another explosion of the passion that boiled in him. But to their surprise, all he said was, Ah, as if he thought to himself. But why make a fuss about that? Naturally, men are drowned in a storm, but it is a perfectly straightforward affair. The depths of the sea... He sprinkled the crumbs from his sandwich paper over them. Or any water, after all. Then, having lighted his pipe, he took out his watch. He looked at it attentively. He made perhaps some mathematical calculation. At last, he said triumphantly, Well done. James had steered them like a born sailor. There, Cam thought addressing herself silently to James. You've got it at last. For she knew that this was what James had been wanting. She knew that now he had got it, he was so pleased that he would not look at her or his father or at anyone. There he sat, with his hand on the tiller, sitting bolt upright, looking rather sulky and frowning slightly. He was so pleased he was not going to let anybody share a grain of his pleasure.
His father had praised him. They must think that he was perfectly indifferent. But you've got it now, Cam thought. They had tacked and they were sailing swiftly, buoyantly on the long, rocking waves which had handed them on from one to another with extraordinary lilt and exhilaration beside the reef. On the left, a row of rocks showed brown through the water, which thinned and became greener, and on one, a higher rock, a wave incessantly broke and spurted a little column of drops which fell down in a shower. One could hear the slap of the water and the patter of falling drops and a kind of hushing and hissing sound from the waves rolling and gambling and slapping the rocks as if they were wild creatures who were perfectly free and tossed and tumbled and sported like this forever. Now they could see two men on the lighthouse, watching them and making ready to meet them. Mr. Ramsay buttoned his coat and turned up his trousers. He took the large, badly packed brown paper parcel which Nancy had got ready and sat with it on his knee. Thus, in complete readiness to land, he sat looking back at the island with his long-sighted eyes, perhaps. He could see the dwindled leaf-like shape standing on end on a plate of gold quite clearly. What could he see, Cam wondered? It was all still a blur to her. What was he thinking now, she wondered. What was it he sought so fixedly, so intently, so silently? They watched him, both of them sitting bareheaded with his parcel on his knee, staring and staring at the frail blue shape which seemed like the vapour of something that had burnt itself away. What do you want? They both wanted to ask. They both wanted to say, ask us anything and we'll give it to you. But he did not ask them anything. He sat and looked at the island, and he might be thinking, we perished each alone. Or he might be thinking, I have reached it. I have found it. But he said nothing. Then he put on his hat. Bring those parcels, he said, nodding his head at the things Nancy had done up for them to take to the lighthouse. The parcels for the lighthouse men, he said. He rose and stood in the bow of the boat, very straight and tall for all the world, James thought, as if he were saying, There is no God and Cam thought as if he were leaping into space. And they both rose to follow him as he sprang, lightly like a young man, holding his parcel onto the rock. Chapter 14 He must have reached it, said Lily Briscoe aloud, feeling suddenly completely tired out. For the lighthouse had become almost invisible, had melted away into a blue haze, and the effort of looking at it, and the effort of thinking of him landing there, which both seemed to be one and the same effort, 
and stretched her body and mind to the utmost. Ah, but she was relieved. Whatever she had wanted to give him when he left her that morning, she had given him at last. He has landed, she said aloud. It is finished. Then, surging up, puffing slightly, old Mr. Carmichael stood beside her, looking like an old pagan god, shaggy with weeds in his hair and the trident, it was only a French novel, in his hand. He stood by her on the edge of the lawn, swaying a little in his bulk, and said, shading his eyes with his hand, They will have landed. And she felt that she had been right. They had not needed to speak. They had been thinking the same things, and he had answered her without her asking him anything. He stood there as if he were spreading his hands all over the weakness and suffering of mankind. She thought he was surveying, tolerantly and compassionately, their final destiny. Now he has crowned the occasion, she thought, when his hand slowly fell, as if she had seen him let fall from his great height a wreath of violets and asphodels, which fluttering slowly lay at length upon the earth. Quickly, as if she were recalled by something over there, she turned to her canvas. There it was, her picture. Yes, with all its greens and blues, its lines running up and across, its attempt at something. It would be hung in the attic, she thought, would be destroyed. But what did that matter, she asked herself, taking up her brush again. She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the centre. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. The end.